Hi, and welcome back to season three of the second chapter. I'm your host, Kristen Duffy. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of my favorite ways to find a podcast, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. Today, I'm talking with Kate McDougall. Kate's career has taken her from acting, too tall, to Sotheby's, too clumsy, to dog walker, too many human owners. Now Kate writes for magazines on her several specialist subjects, and her very first book was released in April. It should be just as normal to explore and to take a side step and take a backward step and to enjoy doing different things because we evolve as people. I mean, it's only normal then that you're going to evolve in your professional life. Hi, Kate. How are you doing today? I'm really good. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much for being here. It's been a long time coming. It has. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, through busy schedules, we've been I scheduling know. off and on for so long. So I'm I really know. excited to talk to you. Me too. Me too. <laughs> so you've had a, a very different journey than I feel like everybody I talk to has had their own journey, but yours has been a different one again to many people I've talked to. You started out with your degree in, was it art history? Yes, yes, it was. Yeah, it was a master's degree in art history. So you had a master's in art history. What did you study before that? So before that, it was A-levels. So that would be, I did three subjects. That was English, theatre studies, and art history. And then, yeah, went on to, I had two years out, actually, between school and university and then went on to do a um, degree in history of art. And I went to a Scottish university, Edinburgh, so that's four-year degree. So somewhere in there, you also were an actor <laughs> in New York City. Yeah. So where did that kind of sneak in? So I always loved drama and acting, and I think that was what I thought I was going to do for so many years. And I pursued it full on with full passion and I did a lot of acting at school and then I had a year out between going from school to university and I my mum was dating an American at the time and I got to live in this apartment in New York that he had and I went to drama school in New York for a few months which was just the most amazing experience I well still am quite tall <laughs> so I went to an all-girls school so I was always being made to play the boys, I was always the boy parts. And it sounds so silly, but like the biggest thing for me was going to drama school and actually getting to play a girl because <laughs> I never got to play the girl part. It's so silly, isn't it? But it was such a big thing for me. No, I get it because even now I am an actor as one of my, one of my things, but I am with a, a female and non-binary Shakespeare company and I'm always oh, playing a man. <laughs> oh. And I do think just physically, I am taller than almost every, almost every person that I act with. So it just makes sense that I would end up playing the man a lot of times as well. But it is funny because I finally, yeah. I'm playing Lady Capulet and what we're doing now. And I, it, part of it was because I was like, will I always be a man in these productions? Yeah. I think it was also because being tall, probably at times thought that I was less feminine than some of my friends who were petite and blonde. I remember my first ever school play when I was really young, it was the Nativity and I was a monk and I had to wear a brown sheet and everyone else was a, like a fairy or an angel and they were in white pretty outfits with tinsel and I was playing a monk and I think that really scarred me so that when I got to play girls on stage, I, I just, it was just so amazing to feel like I was 
like a play a romantic lead and be feminine. Yeah, so that was a real thrill. Not to mention, I'm not particularly religious, but I don't remember monks being part of the nativity. There were no monks in the nativity scene ever. (laughs) I think they just didn't know what to do with me and they might have had a spare brown sheet. So they put it on me and said, you can be the monk, not realizing the psychological effect it might have had on a small child. (laughs) But yeah, it didn't put me off acting. So I, I went to drama school and I just loved it. It was amazing. And I was the proper kind of New York girl. I waited tables in a restaurant and just had a great time. Didn't want to come home, to be honest. And I stretched that out for another year before then I came back and went to university. Okay. So then when you did end up in university, it wasn't for acting, it was for the art history. Yes. Was it right out of school that you ended up at Sotheby's? Yeah, it wasn't. I think I did a few sort of temping jobs. So I did some sort of secretarial work here and there. And just found it all so boring and tedious and I for a long time couldn't understand why we spent so many years doing all this education and you have to really start at the bottom in the in the working world you have to start from a position of just right at the bottom and I don't think anybody had really explained that to me whatever job you want to do whatever field you're going into if it's not something vocational like medicine or something like that then you do have to go into these offices and work in these environments where you have to make tea and file paper and answer the phone and you've got to do it with a smile on your face and I think I found that quite hard I think doing arts for so long and I think I had a romantic idea about what working life would be and it turned out to be quite different. Did you come from an artistic family? No not really no, not really at all. My mum always said, oh, you're a typical Pisces. That's why not, I don't really, you know, <laughs> read much about star signs, but I think the, the, the my birth sign apparently is, it's very creative. I was, I think I was a bit of a, a bit of a black sheep in the family in terms of that. My family is sort of quite traditional and, and farmers mostly coming from a sort of very countryside background, but very much practical and hands-on, but not, not creative really in that way. But yes, so going from the sort of temping work, I then got um, sort of entry level job at Sotheby's, which was really brilliant to start with because I was in a creative environment surrounded by incredible art and amazing objects all the time. And it was really fascinating for a while to learn how it all worked and how the art world worked. I was it was on the cusp of change when I was there. So when I started from when I left, the company had downsized massively. And instead of having two auction rooms in in London, they they moved to just having one. So during the time I was there, it really downsized. But it was a fascinating place to work for a long time, actually. And I met some brilliant people. It's something to be around a specialist who has spent their entire life studying just one, one tiny element of the art world. So will just have an absolute in-depth knowledge about clocks or about silver tankers or specific paintings from the 19th century. I find that passion really interesting to have the love for some things that's so niche. <laughs> it takes some doing, I think. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, agree with you because I, as someone who is so multi, for me, I just have an interest in so many things. I can't imagine, like you said, silver tankards. I know everything about silver tankards from 1840 or something. Yeah, but just that's their whole life. And I think it's 
you see some fascinating people there. I think if you are somebody who has a, a niche passion like that, then, you know, there are some quite eccentric people <laughs> that work in the art world. And that makes for an interesting place to work. But unfortunately, my role there was much more administrative. And I, after a while, I did get a bit frustrated and bored with just doing the paperwork side of it, particularly when you're surrounded by so much beauty and art and not actually being able to learn about it and get involved, I found frustrating. Especially coming in as a creative and then to, yeah, just be dealing with the paperwork. Yeah, yeah. I think for many people that was absolutely fine. But for me, I was just um, so desperate to learn and to be involved with things. And my role very much prevented me from doing that. I My job was to just do the back office side of it. I, I knew you know, after a certain point of time that I wasn't going to be able to stay there too long because I, I got quite bored. <laughs> but from what I gather, I don't think it was boredom that actually was the impetus to finally leave. What happened? <laughs> I am a bit clumsy. I'd had a few incidents where I dropped things and broken things. And Sotheby's, as I'm sure all the major auction houses do have very healthy insurance policies. So it's not a total disaster if you break something. But I did break these two ceramic pigeons and a pair of them. And I, I just broke one after the other in quick succession. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't totally awful because they weren't incredibly valuable. But I think it was the catalyst that made me think I've really got to I've really got to leave now. It's not really my place here. And I'd broken a couple of other things over the years. And I just thought, no, I can't be here anymore. I've really got to do something else. So I mentioned that. You've had a very different path than yes. well, anyone I've ever met. So <laughs> what happened between breaking ceramic pigeons at Sotheby's and having that catalyst to leave and you starting your own business? How did you decide to start this business? <laughs> I'm being all mysterious about it. I'm sure I'm going to have this in the show notes. but Yeah, so I started a dog walking company. I honestly think it... There wasn't, there wasn't one single thing. There was a number of elements that came together. So the pigeons being one of them. But I do think I got to the point where um, I was so frustrated in my job that I was really looking for, really searching for something else to do. And I knew that if I made a sideways move to another large organization, I'd probably have to go into another administrative role. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with doing administrative role, but I, I really wanted, I, I think my creative side of me was just desperate to launch itself and do something. And I wasn't getting anywhere with the acting. I had an agent for a short while, but I'd been repeatedly told I was too tall. And I also needed to How pay tall my are you? rent. I'm six foot. That's not cra crazy tall, but it's taller than a lot of leading men, which I'm sure you've discovered as well. It was around the same time that my friend is a theatre director and he had a, he was working at the Royal Shakespeare Company, I think, at the time. And he had a party at his flat in London and I went along and all the cast that he was working with came. And I just, all these men came in and they were all so small. And I just thought, oh my God. I don't know, maybe it's particularly that cast, but I just felt like a giant in amongst all these guys. And they were all lovely. But I just thought, I can't do this as a job. I just, <laughs> I'm too tall. And I remember a casting director saying to me, it's fine. It's just that getting new work will be 10 times harder than someone else because you're only going to be able to work with actors that are taller than you. And that's going to make 
you getting work really impossible. The reality, if you're living in a big city like London, you have to pay your rent. And if you can do temporary jobs, like I did do for a while, but at the end of the day, you have to have an income coming in. And so it's not really realistic to just be waiting for acting jobs to come up, unless you have some sort of other income or you have somewhere you can stay rent free which I didn't have so getting a full-time job was really the only possibility for me and I think starting my own business was really that creative side that had been inactive for a while just desperate to to do something the dog walking thing was really I met this guy in the park who was a dog walker he only did it for actors actually and he seemed to be making quite a lot of money out of it. And I thought, I can do that. And then I thought I might do a company that was like a concierge type thing where I would help people out. And I'd seen a lot of the sort of clients at Sotheby's and this sort of huge wealth in London and and the kind of opportunity to be somebody that can offer services to somebody in a kind of concierge type way. I could go and pick up people's posts or I could walk to their plants. And I then I just had the idea for, I just had the company name in my head for the dog walking company. And I immediately could picture the logo and how it would sound and look. And that was my creative side coming out, I think. And so I drew these pictures and wrote this text for the website. And a friend of mine from university put it all together for me. And it was that sort of having the image and the visual for it that I think then sparked me to do it. And I was still in my job. So setting up a website and saying you have a company doesn't really mean anything because you don't really have to, I wasn't really investing any money in it. It existed online all of a sudden yes. one day. And then you have a client call you. And then that's when it becomes serious. Then you think, hang on a minute. I've done this now and somebody wants to hire me to walk their dog. Now I have to actually do it. So really, it was really a bit of a project, as it were, like a side project, because I didn't quit my job for a couple of months after that. And then I handed in my notice properly and went full sort of full throttle at it. But when it started, I used other people to walk the dogs in the first sort of few weeks and then made the move. So you were like a, a big boss. <laughs> yes, I was. And and then went back to being the big boss <laughs> a few years down the line. But once I left my job properly and handed my notice in, I walked all the dogs myself then after that, which was, yeah, hard. <laughs> the things that I love that I've seen on your website that you say, just that you knew very little about dogs, <laughs> nothing about owning a business, no. that... People didn't think this was a good use of your university degree. I think all of that's really interesting. I guess because you'd seen this guy walking dogs and thought, okay, he's making money and getting that idea. But I think for me, it'd be just be like, well, I don't really know much about dogs. Maybe this isn't the thing for me. Yeah, I honestly think, and I write about this in the book, I honestly think that naivety and ignorance were the absolute best things I had going for me because I would never have done it otherwise. I know that sounds crazy. And I think if anybody was to ask me for advice about setting up a business, I would want to say to them, do as much research as you can. I did do research in terms of the branding and how I wanted my company to look. But as I said, I I didn't know anything about business and I wasn't prepared for, I had dogs growing up and I loved dogs. And at that time I didn't have my own dog and the idea of spending time with dogs was hugely appealing, but I wasn't prepared for the human element in it, the kind of the clients and the dog walkers I was going to have to manage 
and just the massive complications that human beings add into the situation. It's just the dogs, it's all right, <laughs> but the humans will make it much more complicated. The funny thing about it was that there weren't really any people doing dog walking. Now, I think the time I spent in New York had made the idea of a dog walker seem quite normal to me. Dog walking mm. has been a thing in, in, in New York for since the 60s. So when I would tell people that I was doing dog walking, people would literally say, what is that? Because it was such an, uh, a new <laughs> concept. They didn't understand what it was. And so explaining it to people like my mother, my friends, they literally thought I was crazy because it wasn't a job. It just wasn't a job. Um, dogs would literally be inside all day. And we're only talking about... 2004 here 2006 it was not a job people just didn't walk dogs so I think people did think I was bonkers completely bonkers and um, <laughs> they were probably right in some respects it's funny because I lived in New York for I don't know probably 10 years a little over 10 years and so I go back to visit obviously uh, you know or just going to the states it's nice to go to New York yeah but Every time I go back, I think, oh, that's such a good idea for a business because there's always something that's happening in New York that's not happening in London yet, or that's not happening anywhere yet because New York is just bonkers in its in and of itself. But yeah. it's funny that you say that about the New York thing because, yeah, to me, a dog walker seems like, oh, of course, I saw that all the time in New York or now I see it all the time in London. Yeah. But there really is always things happening there that I guess if you want a business idea, go spend some time in New York bring it back to London. <laughs> yeah. And I, and a lot of the things that would, co would come over here. So I remember thinking that I'm going to start doing dog birthday parties for my clients and people <laughs> go, oh my God, you've got to be crazy. And I think because that does happen. That's, that was a big thing in New York. People gave birthday parties for their dogs. I didn't end up <laughs> That in the end. But the amazing thing about having this idea, which, as I said, people think, thought I was crazy for doing, was that I, I immediately got loads of business because I think we were on this sort of cusp of becoming a little bit more aware that our dogs might actually need to go out during the day. And London was full of young 20, 30 year olds working hard and possibly not having children straight away people climbing the career ladder and possibly having a dog before they had kids. I suddenly had a huge amount of clients in a quite a short space of time. And I think that looks on paper like it's massive success that I've done. But actually, I did just find a bit of a niche in the, in the market. I found a bit of a gap in the market by luck. <laughs> by luck. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, by good timing as well. Obviously, you saw that there was this opportunity. And I think it's interesting because you said about the human side of it yes. was more difficult than some of the animal, the dog part of it. For some reason, this is not fair, but I had in my head much older, like very high society kind of thing versus 20 and 30 year olds. Where did you find this clientele and what, what were they like? So at the start, I think it was the website looked quite cool and funky and different and I think there were maybe one or two other people doing it at that time. And then we're talking about in a huge city, London, obviously. So I think I got clients initially because I was one of the only people doing it. And then I think there was a lot of word of mouth that happened. I did run some events as well, which attracted some, some people. I did a dog dating thing 
which was hilarious because <laughs> I think it attracted all kinds of very strange people who weren't necessarily looking for a dog walker, but makes for a good story in the book. So there were young working people, young couples and families, but there was a high society side to it as well. There was a lot of demanding people, a lot of people who just didn't walk their own dogs. So we had, I'd say the main type of client was someone who worked nine to five, who wasn't at home, who wanted to, Mm -hmm. and someone to come in and let their dog out during the day but then we did have clients that just didn't walk their own dogs and wanted someone else to do that for them and they tended to be a little bit more high maintenance and tricky to deal with (laughs) because they were used to having people do stuff for them and they were used to having things a certain way and dealing with dogs and people it's not always predictable so yeah it was a very difficult client customer service side of it was difficult and exhausting at times. So this dog walking service led to enough stories that you've written a book about it. But I know that wasn't the first thing. The book's been a long time coming. So what was the transition in between? So I think the creative side of the business was, it was the job satisfaction of, and I think whatever job you're doing, whether it's something creative or not, job satisfaction is so important being able to feel that you've done something well and and you're proud of it and you've made someone else happy or you've made their life easier in a sort of customer service role particularly that was enormous at the beginning for me and the creative side of just the, the building of a brand and a company that really scratched that creative itch for me for a long while. But then after a while, it didn't so much anymore. And I found the customer service side of it just draining. And I think I just had enough of doing it. And I wanted to do something else. I was also getting married and having children. So on the one hand, running your own business was great because it enabled me to work childcare around working. But I knew I wanted to do something different. And I put a good 10 years into doing the the business. And that creative side was flaring up again. I wanted to do something to do with writing or drama or something to do with my my, um, artistic side. So I began doing copywriting. The funny thing is I was writing the book alongside um, all of this. And I just didn't have the confidence to think that I could be a writer in a kind of creative way a a creative writer like a novelist I started by doing copywriting because and that was purely a confidence thing I think I thought I can write good copy I can write work newsletters I can write good emails so I'll be able to do copywriting quite well and I found it really easy I think um I've learned writing is a real, it's a real skill to have. And I think I'm really lucky to have that, to be able to put words in a way that sound right to the ear and sentences and building a structured paragraph. I know some people find that really difficult. I find it quite easy to put words together and sentences together and make something sound compelling, um, even if you're talking about a product. So I, I think I, I did enjoy it for a while because... I enjoyed writing something that sounded good, but copywriting wasn't going to be ultimately the thing that made me um, feel fulfilled. So yes, I moved into journalism after that. And as far as journalism, you definitely have some some household names on the list. So you've done freelance journalism for how many years? So uh, two or three years now, I think. 
And that was a big leap. That was a big step forward from believing that I could go from copywriting to journalism was entirely a kind of, I really had to (laughs) give myself a talking to and say, come on, this is what you want to do. I think these things feel unachievable, really. It's a lot of these sort of businesses, like professions like journalism and writing books feel out of reach a lot of the time, I think, or it's somebody else does that job. And it feels like it's impossible to get into these fields. And I think it it is in many respects. I literally just started writing to editors of magazines and saying, I know a lot about dogs and can I send you some ideas? And one or two replied, not everybody. But I think having a sort of niche area of knowledge really helped. People like it if you say, I know lots about this subject. Saying I'm a writer, I think is probably harder to break in. I think if you have a kind of area that you know something about, then that's easier to break into something like feature writing for magazines. You mentioned the confidence thing, but it's not just a confidence in your own ability. It's the actual confidence to look up all these email addresses, write to somebody and say something that makes you sound, I don't know, confident enough to actually do the articles. Because I know as far as approaching people for things, you really have to believe in yourself. It's really hard. So what kind of changed in you that made you feel confident enough to do it? I think I don't feel that confident as a person a lot of the time, but I knew I could do the writing. I think that was what it was. I knew I had this skill that I could write well and I could write as well as the magazine articles that I was reading. And I think it was that sort of knowledge that I could do it in just a very sort of a skill like any skill people would have. It wasn't that I believed I was the world's best writer. I saw it purely as a skill And knowing that I had a lot of knowledge about a certain subject, I thought, why not me? And again, similarly with setting up the business, I think the motivation really to take that step forward for me always comes from a sort of frustration that I'm not doing it. (laughs) And that propels me to (laughs) write that email and to take that next step. It does come down to a kind of a need to do it, a need to prove to myself and to I don't know if I'm proving to anyone else, but it is a kind of deep-seated need to do it that pushes me forward, I think. And that was the same with the book, actually finishing the book and sending the book out. Again, came from a, a frustration that it, I just needed to make it happen. I don't know. I think it is that sort of, it's that creative side of me that needs to come out. And it's always the thing that kind of pushes me forward to take a next step. I don't feel confident about loads of stuff but I think if I dwell on stuff too long and I procrastinate I feel so annoyed with myself that I have to try and do it very familiar language (laughs) I think it's quite hard to analyze your own behavior sometimes because sometimes we don't know why we do the things we do but there's always been a period of frustration for me before I, I I take a leap of faith I love the idea of thinking of it as a skill too, as far as the writing thing goes, because I think far too often in a creative role, especially you think, oh, I have to have this talent and it has to be the muse or there's something along those lines. And just like any other profession, why can't something that's more quote unquote creative, why can't we look at it as a skill and 
yeah, my skill is that I'm good at putting words on paper as opposed to these stories come to me. A lot yeah, of good absolutely. writers, they say they sit down at their desk every day, whether they feel inspired, whether they, it's a job. So I'm really inspired by that. Yeah, I really think that it is, you, you read advice from writers, they do often say, you have to write, you just have to write and you have to read as well. But I think, and I, I said this to my husband the other day, I, I think years of practice of writing essays at school and at university, and then even down to writing complicated, tricky emails to clients when I was running the business, I think being able to structure an, an argument if you're writing an essay about Van Gogh or you're responding to a difficult email, there's a, it's a learnt skill to put those words in a way that sell your argument. And that's about choice of words, obviously, but also about the way that you structure it. And so really, it is practice. So when I write feature articles now, I do think they're very similar in structure to the way I used to write essays at school when I was 17. It's an introduction, it's a middle and it's an end and you want it to link together. And yeah, it's almost exactly the same. <laughs> Just keep doing it. And then it does become a skill that you have. But the more creative side of that skill is that yeah. you brought it into this book, which is London's number one dog walking agency. Say that five times fast. <laughs> <laughs> Say that five times fast is not part of the title. <laughs> London's number one dog walking <laughs> agency. And it's just come out in the UK and it's coming out in the States in July, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's been an amazing experience. It's has been quite a surreal experience. A lot of it happened over lockdown. Just before the first lockdown, I met an agent who was fantastic and immediately realized that she was the person that was going to help me and then we went into lockdown end of March just as I was submitting a book proposal for her when you write a non-fiction book and mine is classed as non-fiction because it's memoir you have to write a proposal which is a breakdown of the chapters and what the book's about and you would do that for any non-fiction book whether it was a history book or a, a cooking book or a memoir so I wrote that during the, the beginning of the first lockdown and then she sent it out to various publishers and within a couple of weeks we had three or four publishers who were interested and there was a bit of back and forth which she did her thing of playing them off each other and trying to get the best deal agenting yes agenting I didn't meet anybody till September of last year so six seven eight months or so where I literally just had a, an occasional phone call with my editor and lots and lots of emails but it almost didn't really feel real because there was no schmoozy meetings or lunches out or anything like that it was all very much um, head down doing the edits and homeschooling and dealing with all the challenges that we all faced last year so when I actually got to meet my editor, when I actually got a sort of proof copy of the book in my hand, it was the most amazing feeling because it made it properly real at that point. It feels like, I don't know, you're one of those annoying people that can come out of lockdown and be like, oh, I wrote my first book in lockdown. <laughs> I'm sure it sounds like that but no I wrote the book took years to write on and off and in between I've had three children so there's been a lot of nappy changing and sleepless nights along the way as well yeah no I, I only really did the editing part during lockdown but I'm sure it sounds like that to come out of lockdown with hi it's my book but the actual reality <laughs> was it was years in the making of the book and again a 
back and forth battle with my confidence at every stage with that. Um, not thinking it was any good and not believing in it and then going back to it and then not believing in it and then going back to it. And at the end, as I said, just being so annoyed with myself that I hadn't finished it and done it. And uh, yeah, so finally got it done. And uh, yeah, it's been just the most amazing thing. And they've asked me to write a fiction book. So that's what I'm working on next. That's really exciting. Uh, What's the fiction book going to be about? Well, it's a bit. Can you say? I can't really say at the minute. It's a bit up in the air, but it's yeah. It's it feels like a real process, a real journey. I've gone from sort of copywriting and emails to journalism to writing a nonfiction book, and now to going to fiction. It it feels like a sort of a step, each little step towards actually possibly really what I want to do, which is to write. And that's been such a long process to get here and I don't regret a minute of doing the business or anything else and I think you only really find your feet at a certain point and come to realize what you're good at but what you enjoy and I think particularly as a woman if you have children as well there's so many breaks in your career and in your life and all the other things that life throws at you it does take time to really figure out what you want to do and where you want to go and what you enjoy doing that's a big thing. I don't think that happens until you're a bit older. Not well for some people anyway, I'd say. We were talking before we started recording about this kind of need to, once you have something like a university degree or whatever kind of training you choose to do, but how difficult it is to say, actually, I want to do something else because you feel this almost sense of duty or I spent time, I spent money, I have to continue on this path. It does take a while, I think, if you've changed your mind or if you find you're good at something else, I don't want yeah, to use the word brave, but there is a courage to. Yeah, 100%. I have lots of friends who've started, done one job and stuck at it and they've really moved within that industry to different companies, but they've been on the same path and that's brilliant and they still love what they do. But I think it, it should be just as normal to explore and to take a side step and take a backward step and to enjoy doing different things because we evolve as people I mean it's only normal then that you're going to evolve in your professional life I had a very traditional upbringing and the steps that I think I was expected to take was school university job marriage kids and I've done those things probably not in the, the, the right the order that some people have done but for me I just never felt there was one kind of one exact path and I knew that I'd be trying different things until I felt like I'd find something that I enjoy doing and I might do something different again I don't know but I think that's okay and we should all embrace that absolutely obviously I agree with that (laughs) considering (laughs) I gave you a hard time too about the lockdown book which I of course I know is not the truth but what I loved was I was reading that Ruth Hogan who is known for her own very uplifting novel The Keeper of Lost Things called the book an absolutely glorious romp of a book (laughs) and I do think just coming out of the past year and a half at this point that we've had Something described as a glorious romp just sounds like what we all really need. (laughs) Yeah, it's a really light-hearted book, and I think it's very warm. And people that um, have read it have very kindly said that they feel uplifted by it, and it's filled with hope. I think if you're a dog lover, it's particularly particularly pleasing to read because there's so many different doggy characters in there. But also, I think if you're not particularly into dogs, the human side of it is 
I think that sort of fly on the wall element, the way you get a chance to peek into other people's lives is always quite interesting. Being a dog walker, you do have this such a privileged position where you're going into these people's houses and you become a sort of trusted member of their household, really. And this sort of insight into other people's lives, I think as a a writer or a wannabe writer or anybody that has an interest in human nature just finds that so appealing. And uh, from day one, I thought, this is, I've got to write this down. This is, <laughs> this is going to be so interesting. I think the book only really came to life when I fitted my own story in with that of the clients. My own, I don't really like the word journey, but that sort of passage from coming into your adulthood and finding your feet and realizing who you are as a person and what it means to be an adult and a grown-up, which I think is something that a lot of us struggle with. What are the markers of adulthood? Does it mean that you have five saucepans and <laughs> you've got an, an ironing board? I, I would constantly measure myself against these people that I would see, their houses, and some of them were immaculate and some of them were messy. And I'd always think, gosh, why don't I have that in my life? And I sort of things that we were so bad at judging ourselves against other people and comparing ourselves. And I think becoming an, a grown-up, in inverted commas, is, is such an interesting thing, isn't it? The way that we we don't really ever see ourselves in that way, I don't think. And so create starting my own family and getting married and having children and finding feeling like I found my sort of feet in the world. That's a lot of the book as well. And I think anybody can relate to that because we all have to go through it. Yeah, definitely the grown-up thing. I always think... Still, sometimes I think, when am I going to feel like a grown up? And I don't know. I don't yeah. know. Does it take your own yeah. business? Does it take kids or does it take family tragedy? I don't know. I haven't decided what that marker is yet. Yeah. But I think I probably will go to my grave, even if I live to be 100, yeah. with certain elements of my life not realizing that I became a quote unquote grown up. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we, yeah, I think we all, we take a step back sometimes in our lives, don't we, and think, my God, how, why do I have, I have three children and two dogs and I'm doing this, that's properly grown up. And we don't really feel that way inside. I feel reassured when I speak to other people and say they feel the same because for a long time, I thought it was just me. But Definitely actually, not just you. <laughs> I think a lot of people feel that way and think, oh my goodness, what am I doing? Yeah, it's, it's a funny old thing, isn't it? I don't think that when we're 60, 70, 80, I don't think we'll ever probably feel like we're grown ups, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. I don't ever want to be too grown up. I also no. just sometimes want to do things that, that aren't properly grown up and not feel guilty at all. Exactly. I wanted to mention too, in this uplifting thing is your website, because I've been on your website, com. I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. But it, talk about uplifting. It's You have an interest in photography. There's beautiful photographs. There's yes. stuff about your writing. There's pictures of your kids. I feel like that your website made me so happy. <laughs> oh, that's so kind of you. I really should pay more attention to my website. Yeah, I think it's funny. We're talking about the creative itch thing. I, I think photography is one thing that I do as another creative outlet. I just love taking pictures. And I think in another way that writing is a skill, I think just learning how to frame a picture and getting the light and stuff. I just love doing it. And sometimes I see something, I'm like, I've got to take a picture of that. And I think that's just, I don't believe if you're a creative person, you have one outlet for that. I think probably if you like the arts and you are creative, 
then lots of things appeal to you. And photography is something I really loved and wish I did more of. And when I wasn't writing as much, I took more pictures, I think, because it was that need to have an outlet, a creative outlet. I haven't taken as many pictures recently, but my kids will probably say differently. I'm always saying, wait, hold that, stand there, <laughs> take a picture of them. Yeah, I do really love taking pictures. And yeah, I'm sure I'll do more of that in the future. And there's just lots of, you know, beautiful pictures of things like dogs and countryside. And uh, yeah, it's... It is very, we live in a really beautiful part of the world. And I think when you're out and about walking dogs, or even if you're not walking dogs, you're just walking yourself, seeing the sort of changing of the seasons, particularly this last year, I really just love it. I love noticing the changes that go on in in the world outside and we have a little bird feed. I'm just fascinated by the little birds that come and, and say hi to us in the morning. And uh, yeah, I think being out in the countryside and being in nature has been just such a comforting thing this last year. And I've never for one moment definitely felt, I felt so grateful to be where we live and so appreciative and so aware of how lucky we are to be surrounded by fields and nature because it's been so important. So as a woman of words, of course you brought me a quote because that's my thing. But of all the words in the world, what was your quote? It's it's short and snappy. It is, everything is copy, which is Nora Ephron. She's one of my favorite writers. A lot of people might only know her from her films, which are When Harry Met Sally, Sleepless in Seattle, You've Got Mail. She's a, a brilliant writer very funny lady everything is copy for a writer that um says everything really you're meant to observe the world around you and absorb it all I think and then digest that and hopefully that will come out in the in what you're writing but I think in a larger sense so much of my business when it was going badly I learned from and I think you can take that quote as learning from your mistakes and learning from things that don't go so well can be so useful going forward. I only really perfected how to run a business after, I didn't say perfected, probably got onto page one after a number of years, mainly from (laughs) the mistake, from the mistakes I made. So many mistakes I learned as I went from the basic things like having insurance, which I didn't have to start for the first couple of months, just schoolboy errors like that to how to deal with clients and navigate sort of sensitive situations. Really, the way you get good at something is by making mistakes. And so I like to think of everything as copy as meaning that as well as obviously on a more literal sense, you can use all of the things around you for your writing and to keep your eyes open and observe all the time. So in all these stories and all this copy that was coming from the the dog walking (laughs) service, are there things in the book that you had to say, names have been changed for the protection of the identity? (laughs) I'm getting emphatic head nod from that. (laughs) Yeah, I changed all the names. There's a, a character in the book called The Principal. And when I took on this client who is ultra famous, I, he was only ever referred to as the principal in various sort of non-disclosure documents I was sent and made to sign. So I was just referred to him as the principal because I just thought it was such a silly, silly name. And he's a human being. Why can't we just call him by his name? But whenever he was referred <laughs> to me, he was called the principal. So he's called the principal in the book. And yes, no, I've changed all the names. I don't think... The people in the book, some of them wouldn't want their real names out there because some of their behavior is 
not very flattering. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. There must be things that were just cringy. Um, really cringy. I think, I think people get very emotional about their dogs. And I understand that. I've got two dogs myself. But I think possibly people's expectations about what a service is sometimes get a little skewed. I think I seem to find that as the business went on, people became more and more entitled and expected certain things. And in reality, it's just you're just a dog walker. Some of the requests that we have are fairly bonkers. We were used to giving Evian to dogs and cutting up their food with knife and forks and drying them with hair dryers and reading the bedtime stories and all of that. That's, that was all became quite normal. A lot of people will go, what to that? But that, those were standard requests. That's what I did. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we got used to used to the clients that were, because there were so many of them, their dogs were their children in many respects. And I respected that 100% while taking notes and thinking that's interesting. <laughs> I must remember that for the book. Um, but yes, I think some of the um, more complicated situations we got in with the customers when you became slightly more involved in their private lives inadvertently, that's when things became a bit tricky. I had a, a couple who split up and had a sort of very complex sharing arrangement with their dog. And, and as the dog walker, you become slightly more involved in their private life than you possibly should be. That's all in the book. I had to, I had to spy for one of them on the other one and things like that. So yeah. And then there was one, yeah, there was one client who got us involved with her mother-in-law who was in a care home and we had to go and pick up prescriptions and expensive bottles of champagne to take to her and stuff. It was a real eye-opener in, in many respects, but yeah, obviously very good copy for the book. <laughs> <laughs> it all sounds very intriguing to me, but I'm going to tell listeners if they want to know more, they have to buy your book so yes. London's yes. number one dog walking agency yes please do I think for dog lovers obviously it's going to be something going to really enjoy reading but as I said yeah I think there's just a lot of fascinating human stories in there too and it's a real love letter to London I think as a city that I dearly love and miss very much it's a fantastic place to live and just full of brilliant people and brilliant parks. I think London's just got the best parks in the world. And I learned so much just walking through all those different parks, trying to run this business and wondering what I was doing. This just occurred to me as we were talking about Nora Ephron and we were talking about, you were describing this love letter to London. It's so ripe for a film. Who would play you? Who would be your dream casting for the oh film? God. I don't know. It has been optioned for telly, actually. Do but it! <laughs> but it's very early days with that. I'm not, it's not technically, I'm not actually allowed to say who or what's happening. Very early days, but very exciting. They've got some brilliant ideas for it. So hopefully we'll see it on the screen. I don't know. I'm a big Fleabag fan. So Phoebe Waller-Bridge would probably be my, my ideal casting, I think. And I don't know how tall she is, but she comes off as tall. So she could probably make some comic use of some height things as well. <laughs> yes. She might not just, be. I don't know for sure. I think she might be. I think she's just got that slightly, oh, what am I doing face. She, she does great, um, her brilliant expressions to the camera. I related to that character a lot. So yeah, I'd, uh, I think she's fantastic. I think she'd be my number one choice. 
All right. With that note, um, <laughs> Phoebe Waller-Bridge, if you're listening, uh, get on this right away. Exactly. And yes, I think it would be amazing. <laughs> you thought Fleabag was big? Wait till you're a dog walker. <laughs> Fingers crossed. I think it would be. I think it would be great to see it on screen. Yeah, I'll keep you posted. Definitely. And I look forward to your fiction book when that comes out as oh, well. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I hope. Maybe next year, end of next year, beginning of the year after. Yeah, I've got to write it first. So Yes, and hopefully yeah. you won't have any lockdowns to keep you focused. No, it's uh, just the homeschooling. I could definitely do without that. that That's true. Again. <laughs> but yeah, it's, I'm so excited to get stuck into it. Yeah, I'll let you know when it comes out. Perfect. Thank you so much, Kate, for joining Thanks, me. It was really Kristen. fun chatting with you. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to subscribe and tell a friend about the second chapter. The second chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them with a specific focus on women 35 plus. For more about Slackline, visit slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.